All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Lamentations chapter 3. Admittedly, I have been looking forward to this passage of Scripture these next two weeks for some time. Uh, I am, uh, as, as perhaps you are, uh, a little weary of judgment. I was weary of judgment before we left Jeremiah. Um, but there's a different focus. There's a different direction into which Lamentations is taking us. And it's all focusing in on Lamentations 3. I was hoping to get it done in, in one week. We are not going to be able to do that. It will take two. But we begin, begin to explore this evening this pinnacle of the book of Lamentations. Uh, not the end of the book, but the climax of the book. We have considered together the sorrow of Jerusalem. We have considered together the wrath of the Lord. And today we see where it all comes from and where it's all going and if you take anything away from the brief series in Lamentations, I hope it is that we understand better how it is that we respond to the character of God, His justice, His holiness, His chastening, that all that we've discovered in Jeremiah, all of the burdens that we've borne with the people of Israel throughout Jeremiah, all of the terrible things that we've considered as in, the, in this poetic recognition of God's justice and God's chastening in Lamentations 1 and 2, and again as we consider it in Lamentation a little bit tonight, tonight in 3, and then more in 4 and 5, is all pointing us toward some elements of not just the character of God, but how is it that we respond to these elements of the character of God? How is it that you frame your mind when you see these things come to pass? By what perspective are you looking at the trials and tribulations of your life? By what perspective are you looking at the chastening hand of the Lord? Now, some of that's going to come this week. Some of that's going to come next week. But this is the focal point of the book. So, really, what we're called to do in Lamentations is look at the big picture of everything that Jeremiah presented to us. And this is no more evident than this climax of our chiastic structure here in Lamentations 3. Remember what we are looking at as we look at these five chapters in Lamentation. It's five different poems, five different Lamentations in this very unique structure in which we find a, a measure of parallelism between chapters 1 and chapter 5, chapters 2 and chapter 4, and it all draws our attention to chapter 3. I know I, I'm, I'm sounding like a little bit of a broken record. I've presented this to you for weeks. But, but you need to see this because this is how this book, this is what this book is doing, all right? Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all contain 22 verses corresponding to the 22 letters found in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are an acrostic of sorts, just like Psalm 119, with the first letter of each of those 22 verses beginning with the next letter of the alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and all the way through. And so there's a definitive structure. There's a definitive poetic structure. These are poems. But then this chiastic structure, this parallelism here, drawing us to see that chapter 3 matters. And chapter 3, of course, is unique. Different than all the rest. Contains 66 verses, not 22 verses. Right? Instead of it being Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth per verse, every three verses, every three lines, Aleph, Aleph, Aleph. Beth, 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 Gimel, 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 Daleth, 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 through the 66 verses of Lamentation, chapter 3. As with the other parts of the Lamentations, we can generally break this Lamentation into three primary parts. Verses 1 through 18, speaking of Jeremiah's sorrow. 
Verses 19 through 36, considering the character of the Lord in the midst of that sorrow. Verses 37 through 66, calling upon man to consider, to understand, to repent, to realign with the Lord in all of these things. Now, we aren't going to walk through all of that today. As, I, as you see here, we are, we're only going to walk through the first 25 verses of these 66 verses. And that because there are two directions that I like to go with the text, and there's simply too much to talk about to try to jam it all into one message. This evening, we're going to talk about the nature of understanding what the Lord is doing rationally, recognizing what God is doing, knowing God's character, relating ourselves to God's character on a knowledge level, and we're going to contrast that with the nature of our emotional state within the, the, the context of trial, tribulation, temptation, and chastisement. The relationship between feelings and perceptions, between thoughts and actions. This message is, is, as it were, timely, as I mentioned this morning, to help those who might be struggling with their emotions and with their thoughts. Those who are struggling with sorrow or shame or frustration, depression, anger, contempt, bitterness, resentment, and to understand our relationship to these emotions that we feel so that we can then understand the biblical prescription for overcoming them. Then next week we'll dwell more generally upon the nature of God's chastening and understand how it is that we, within the midst of God's chastening, can find a measure of joy and even appreciation. So let's get to it this evening. We begin in verses 1 through 6 of Lamentations 3. The Bible says this, I am a man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old." Now, uh, you notice here, and, and th this uh, won't necessarily continue throughout our entire time, but I, I color-coded these verses for you to see when we switch from Aleph to Beit. Uh, just to remind you what's happening under, underlying here, there's not a, a real theological significance to that, so you don't need to spend a lot of, of time thinking about it, but you notice there uh, the transition where you can see this three-verse transition from, from, from beginning with Aleph to beginning with Beit and, and, and such, as I just mentioned. Jeremiah here describes his sorrow. There, there are some commentators who do not believe that this is Jeremiah speaking. I think we'll see throughout this text various times where it does seem as though Jeremiah is speaking of himself. The reason why we might not think that this is Jeremiah particularly is because uh, there's some things listed here as Jeremiah speaks that you'd say, well, Jeremiah, is that really you? Did that really happen to you? I mean, the Lord spared you from a good number of these things, right? Uh, you weren't the one that went through this. You didn't die, right? You didn't, you didn't uh, uh, go through some of these things. But remember what Jeremiah did go through. Remember him sitting in that miry hole, right? And being fed with the bread and the water of affliction. Remember his sorrow. Remember his suffering. Remember his weeping. Remember... As we even considered last week, Jeremiah having to witness this happen to his people, to his nation, 
to the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah watched all of these things transpire. You talk about traumatizing. Jeremiah, we, we, we settled a little while ago in Jeremiah 52 that quite possibly at this time in history, there were only some 5,000 Jews left on the entire earth. That means a lot of people died, right? So Jeremiah seen this. So as we consider this, some of the language in the chapter, uh, it, it, is, it, sh it should not be too far off from what we might imagine Jeremiah to be thinking as he writes such things. And we also need to understand, of course, that we are speaking here of poetry. And poetry has a natural poetic license to it, right? Where in the Psalms and the Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, we recognize that things are written in metaphorical language and flowery language, uh, that things are written in a manner to impact because it's written poetically. Don't forget that as well. Now we know that Jeremiah has been spared much of those physical consequences, and yet he has been through a tremendous amount of witnessing of God's wrath. What is even more interesting is that as we will study in this portion of pain and of sorrow, the descriptions seem to be far more about the spiritual suffering of a feeling of alienation or separation from God than necessarily a direct physical suffering. You'll, you'll uh, observe in some of the, these elements of, of Jeremiah's lamentation uh, a true feeling, an angst at, at feeling as though God is far from him and wondering if God has forsaken Perhaps you've been there before. Jeremiah describes himself as being in darkness, that the hand of God has been turned against him. You've perhaps seen the aging process brought about upon a man through the stress that is upon him. Jeremiah describes this poetic aging process. He says in verse four, my flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. The idea of a man that is in such sorrow, if you've seen a man and he's not eating and he's very sorrowful and his cheeks kind of get hollow and he gets uh, gaunt and, and, and kind of white and, and, and he almost looks a little bit like a corpse because he has been in the throat rose of sorrow and, 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 and in, in a tremendous amount of, of um, anxiety or shame or depression. He says his flesh and his skin were made old and his bones have begun to feel brittle and, and maybe he, his joints are, are, are tightening up because of his sorrow and because of his, his, his uh, confusion. He describes a feeling of personal attack as if the Lord has come against him. He describes being surrounded with gall and travail, with bitterness and the darkness of death, setting him in a dark place. The poetic implication being uh, that those who have settled long into the darkness of death uh, are, are starting to look familiar to him as if he's slowly just dying through his grief. Perhaps reminiscent in many ways of the depths of Jonah's sorrow. Do you remember in Jonah? Jonah tries to run from the Lord and the, he gets swallowed by the, the fish. And then as Jonah is there in this fish, he begins the process of recognition of what his sin has cost him. 
and he feels separated from the Lord. And he writes this in Jonah 2, verses 2 and 3. I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardst my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Jonah describing, I mean, there's a, there's a literalness to this, right? Because he's in the belly of a fish. But there's a, a poetic, metaphorical idea here that, that the seas have come over him, have overwhelmed him. Uh, the, uh, from the belly of hell, the idea there being the belly of the grave, of Sheol, right, is the word there. The belly of the grave, literally feeling like he is a dead man living crying out to the Lord for a reconciliation of that fellowship, for, for a drawing near when he has felt so far away. He couches his chastening in the language of death itself here in Jonah, highlighting the depths of his pain and his sorrow of the separation. And this, of course, led him to understanding the character of the God he serves. And we read that here as well. This is what Jeremiah is going through. I think there's a lot of parallels between what we're reading in Jeremiah's lamentation here and, and, and very similar to that idea in Jonah. And the highlight, I believe, is not so much on the physical at this point, but the spiritual, that separation, that anguish, that the Lord is far from me feeling. Have you been there? Verses seven through 12. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow." He continues speaking of these feelings, these feelings of being held down, of being held captive, of being attacked, of being hunted. He says that he's hedged about. He looks around him. If you've ever been, if, 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 you, if you're kind of a claustrophobic person and you look around and, and it's like you're stuck and you can't get out and no matter which way you look, uh, you're surrounded. He says, I feel like that. And then he says, he hath made my chains heavy. If you've ever been in a circumstance where you've been bound and you can't get out, uh, maybe uh, someone has tied you up or whatever, and you start to feel that discomfort of the lack of control of being bound and, and those heavy chains as if you can't even stand up, you can't even readjust, you are weighed down with these chains. That's the feeling. The idea that he, he's crying out to the Lord in these heavy chains, he's crying out in this place that he's hedged about and no one's listening. He feels he says he feels as if his way is enclosed with hewn stones. This is an interesting one. Not simply between a rock and a hard place, as if you've gotten yourself into a tough scrape in nature, but like literally God had carved out a prison for him. And then he says, he hath made my paths crooked. He doesn't know which way to go. He doesn't know where to find God. Once again, we see language that is very reminiscent here. Very reminiscent of another man in his expressions of sorrow. We went to Jonah. We considered Jonah's feelings of, of separation from the Lord and his angst. This particular set reminds me of Job. 
When Job said in Job 23, verses 8 and 9, Behold, I go forward, and he is, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. Job is confused. He says, I'm looking for God and I'm not finding him. I'm crying out and I'm not hearing anything. It's like he has enclosed me. It's like he has chained me. It's like he has put me into this, this, this prison of hewn stone. He has made my path crooked and I'm looking for the way through the darkness and it's not there. I can't find it. I see no light. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Jeremiah describes the Lord as a bear or as a lion lying in wait for him waiting simply for him to come along so he can grab him and tear him into pieces. Then again, as a soldier, God who has bent his bow and he has placed his target for his arrow on Jeremiah. He continues this particular description in verses 13 through 18. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins, continuing that bow and arrow um, uh, metaphor there. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. We come to what I have interpreted as the end of the first section of this lamentation. Jeremiah continues this description of the Lord's attacks. Verse 12, he spoke of the Lord bending his bow and making Jeremiah his target. Verse 13, he describes the Lord letting go of that arrow, right? And it entering into him. The pain and the sorrow has hit him. Not just that he feels as though he was hunted, but that he has been caught. He has been put down. Jeremiah describes the shame of his condition the derision among his people, perhaps speaking of the time when he was as a, as a prophet seeking to call his people back to him, back to the Lord. He speaks of being filled with bitterness and being drunken with wormwood, a, a very bitter substance. And this would not necessarily be the emotion of bitterness as if he's becoming a bitter and resentful person, but the feeling of bitterness, you know, that, that, that deep sorrow as if when you wake up in the morning and life is bitter, the outlook, it's, it's like you're, you're no longer seeing in color, you're seeing in black and white. Like everything is, is hazy. And there's just no, there, there, there's no end in sight, there's no hope. This is what Jeremiah is describing. He describes God as having broken his teeth with gravel stones. Perhaps here, reminiscent of the same idiom which Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. Or what man is there of you whom if his son will ask bread, will he give him a stone? Jeremiah says, I'm chewing on gravel. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But God, all you've given me to chew on is gravel. It's, it's breaking my teeth. The words of your prophecies have broken my teeth. The realities of my suffering, of the suffering of my people, of the shame, of the derision, I'm chewing on gravel. There's a feeling here of negligence as if Jeremiah is so reeling from the sorrow and loss of himself and of those around him that he truly cannot process the grief apart from feelings of complete and utter abandonment. So it is Jeremiah who says that the Lord has removed his soul from peace, that he has forgotten prosperity, 
and has declared his hope having fallen entirely away from the Lord. Have you been there before? Did you know that such feelings of sorrow and despair are not beyond a Christian? They're not beyond the prophet of God. Did you know there will be times when you will feel sorrowful, confused, neglected, abandoned? When you feel as though you've been left for dead, as, the, as if God has a target on your back and he's just putting arrows into you. When you feel you have no means within you by which to understand God's dealings, but you know that you're in pain. When God's faithfulness seems ever far from you. This was Jeremiah. This is what he was experiencing. And as with any emotion in this life, the point of a relationship with the Lord is not that you aren't going to feel certain emotions. The point of a relationship with the Lord is not that you're not going, is not that, that there are not going to be days, pardon the double negative, when these things are going to feel that way. When you're going to be reeling, when you're going to be confused, when you're going to be in despair, when you're going to wonder what's going on, when you can't see the Lord working, when you, you can't understand the perspective, you don't even have enough <laughs> within you to gain the perspective by which to to think through these things emotionally. Sorrow and despair, anger, vengefulness. Now we know these emotions are not of themselves of the Lord. And we know it's not enough simply not to act on these emotions because to cage them inside is a recipe for bringing about bitterness and resentment. Uh, to cage them inside is, is, is to do our soul irreparable harm. So what do we do? How do we deal with the kinds of emotions that Jeremiah is feeling here? What do we do when we get into this place? Well, Jeremiah helps us, beginning in verse 19. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Jeremiah gives us insight into a progression of his emotions here and how he handles them. It is not that our emotions are necessarily invalid in any given instance when we are dealing with sorrow or shame or confusion or anger or loss, not knowing which way to go, not even knowing which way is up, these sorts of things. It is not necessarily that our emotions in these instances are invalid. Now, there are many invalid emotions, aren't there? Times when our heart is simply lying to us. But there are other times where these emotions are very valid. But just because an emotion is valid doesn't mean it has to control us. Just because it's valid doesn't mean it has to be dominant. Just because I feel a certain way, this does not give me license to indulge those feelings, much less act upon them. And what we find here is that Jeremiah takes how he feels and he submits it to what he knows. 
Jeremiah takes how he feels and he submits it to what he knows. We know from Jeremiah 17, 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We know that emotions cannot ever be the hinge upon which our thoughts, much less our actions, swing because our emotions are, are fickle and fleeting and they can be extreme. And take note of this. We aren't just talking about actions here. We're talking about our thoughts as well. There are many people today who, though they may never have an intent upon acting upon how they feel, yet they indulge their feelings as the basis upon which their thoughts are built. They literally found their entire way of thinking, their entire way of living upon the nature of their feelings. And so their thoughts become dark, maybe resentful, maybe embittered, maybe just cynical. Sometimes we call it depression. Sometimes we call it pessimism. Sometimes we just call it grumpiness. But it's an outworking of a situation whereby our emotions have taken our thoughts into a place of darkness and sorrow. Regardless of their degree to which those feelings and thoughts compel my actions, they have put me into a state of mind. And I say it this way carefully. I may feel anger toward a person which works its way out in thoughts of punishment and pain and suffering on their part. And while I would never perhaps act on such thoughts, on that anger, in doing anything to that person, that doesn't mean that those thoughts themselves don't affect me. Right? It may, those thoughts may not affect my actions to the point where I go out and I take it out on that person that I hate, that person up, uh, on which I'm angry or for, against which I'm angry. But that doesn't mean that my spirit, my demeanor, my emotional stability, my outlook on life, my interaction with family and friends won't suffer. We are in a time where depression in our country is through the roof. People begin to separate from family. They begin to separate from friends. They begin to, uh, uh, they start into the cycle of focusing on themselves, which is the worst thing you can do, right, when you're in depression because that's what got you there to begin with. And they do this, they get into this downward spiral deeper and deeper into the depths of their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own shame and their own bitterness and their own resentments and their own fears and their own struggles and their own confusions. And then before they know it, it's such a tangled web, they don't know which way is up. And while those things may never lead to the kind of extremism that we might fear, the kinds of things that lead to, for these terribly afflicted young men to go into places and shoot them up or a, a man to strap a bomb to his chest and go into a crowded race and blow himself up, while it may never lead to that, it leads to alienation from family, alienation from friends and loved ones. It leads to a, a soul despair. And of course, for consecutive years now in the United States, life expectancy has gone down. Life expectancy has not gone down because we're struggling with medical insufficiencies because of our healthcare system. Life expectancy is going down because of the rate of overdoses and suicides. And then the, the vast number of overdoses and suicides in this country is driving life expectancy in this country down. That's how many are taking place. And it's rooted in a culture that cannot separate 
their thoughts and their emotions that cannot find, gain a handle on how they feel. Little do we well consider just how closely our emotions and our thoughts are tied to the manner in which we live our lives. Even in situations seemingly unrelated, those thoughts and those emotions are touching us. They're affecting us. All of this being said, however, there are times when our emotions are so overwhelming that it seems they are all that we can see. And it is in these moments that we are called to stop and to remember, to take inventory of what you know so that you can have a better perspective on how you are feeling and how that's making you think. So Jeremiah describes a situation here whereupon his mind and his thoughts have led him into sorrow and confusion and affliction and misery of bitterness and of poison. His emotions have brought him to a place where by his perceptions, as far as he can understand the world that is around him through his perceptions, through his emotions, through his senses, through his feelings, God is absent. Where is he? I can't find him. I called to him. I hear nothing. I'm looking for a straight path. It's crooked. I'm looking for, for, for a door and I'm hedged in on every side. And he says that while his soul still has these things in remembrance and his soul was humbled, he said, that word meaning to be sunk down into a depressive state of mind. He says, my soul put these things in remembrance and it was humbled. It was sunk into the mire. Maybe he's thinking back to when or perhaps writing this very thing while he's sunk in that mud. But metaphorically here, because he says, my soul is sunk in that mud. Have you been there? It's like you, you're, you, you're looking for God and you can't find him. You open your Bible and it's like, it's like a different language. Nothing's happening. You pray and it's like those prayers are bouncing back. It's like the heavens are made of brass. And you're sunk in the mud and it's like you're trudging and it's everything that you can do to take one step in front of another, spiritually if not physically. While his soul had these things in remembrance, while he was sunk down in this state of mind, while he was in the midst of this great sorrow and all of the natural consequences that that sorrow brings about in his disposition and his heart and his body, in this state, he says, I recalled something to my mind. And this recollection brought him to a place of hope. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. A place of personal expectation. That's what that word means. Hope in the scriptures is not a fearful longing. I hope that someday I might be able to go see the pyramids in Egypt, well, that's, that's a nice hope, but that's not at all in any way expected, right? It's just, it's just a hope. That's not how the Bible defines hope. The Bible does not define hope as a fearful longing of something you want but may never get. The Bible defines hope. The biblical word hope means a joyful and earnest expectation. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. Biblical hope is when I've got a plane ticket and I've got a reservation at the hotel and I, I have my bags packed 
and I'm simply waiting for the time to tick to where I get on the plane to go fly to Egypt to look at the pyramids because I've got everything else in hand. That's biblical hope. Everything is in place and I'm just waiting for it to come. He says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Overriding the emotions that he was feeling in the midst of his sorrow while he sunk in that mire in, to order his thoughts, his thoughts turning from despair and sorrow to an expectation of something from the Lord. And notice Jeremiah doesn't say here that he created some hope. He didn't say, I dug deep into myself and found that bit of self-esteem and found that kernel of, of me that says that I love me and I'm something special and, 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 and so there's always, there's always something there and I just need to, to find myself. He didn't say that. Notice he didn't say, I created a measure of hope. He says, I recalled something to my mind, something that already existed something that had never changed, something that had never moved, something that had never gone anywhere. It's just he brought it back into his mind and it brought him back to expectation. Jeremiah is not conjuring up happy feelings here. He is not pretending. He's not, he's not putting lipstick on a pig, right? He is not pretending here and saying that I'm going to self-actualize my happiness by saying I'm happy, even though I don't feel happy and saying it until I feel it. This is not what Jeremiah is doing here. Jeremiah says, it's there. It's always been there. I've just not, I've, I've, I've not remembered it. It's not gone anywhere. I just forgot. I got outside of myself. I lost myself for a minute. But it's been there and I remembered it and it gave me hope. He's not rooting his feelings on some subjective standard here. He is returning to truth. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's returning to what he knows to be true. That truth never went anywhere. Jeremiah just missed, he lost focus. He allowed his emotions, how he was feeling, to override what he knew to be true. He's allowing what is real to override how he feels. He is allowing the truth to overcome his perception. He is turning to the realities of God's word to settle his understanding on who God is and on what God is doing, which is standing with him and where he stands with God. And so Jeremiah recalls to his mind this glorious truth that for all of the suffering that the nation has been through, for all of the suffering that he has been through, for all of the trials and troubles, for all of the things that are not going right, they've not been consumed. It is of the Lord's mercies, he says, that we have not been consumed. Not only have they not been consumed, but that God's mercy has never left his people. God's compassions have not failed. And even in their sorrow, even in their trouble, God's compassion is there. He sees it. These compassions, Jeremiah says, they're new every morning. Yesterday's sorrows don't define today. Today's sorrows don't have to define tomorrow. They don't have to define today's thoughts. They don't have to define today's actions. They don't have to define today's determinations. And that because the Lord, Jeremiah says, is quick to forgive and abundant in mercy. That because the Lord's faithfulness is great beyond measure, 
beyond capacity to quantify. And remember, Jeremiah here is not conjuring up within himself some excuse to feel better. Jeremiah is returning to objective truth from the place that his subjective emotions, perceptions, and passions carried him. His heart has been lying to him, and he's finally stopped listening. That's what's happening here. And when Jeremiah understands this, he says his soul was lifted to the heavens where his soul declared, the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. He's mine and I'm his. Therefore, will I hope in him. When my wife and I got married, my wife got me this ring and it, it has that, that Hebrew phrase from Song of Solomon, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That's what Jeremiah is remembering here. Jeremiah is remembering that God does not forsake his own. Jeremiah is remembering that the Lord is his portion. The Lord is his inheritance. The Lord is his and he is the Lord's. Therefore, there is hope. I will not, Jeremiah says, hope in men. I will not hope in circumstances. I will not place myself at the whims of my emotions or my experiences. I will instead submit these emotions and these thoughts to the objective remembrance of who God is as presented in his word. And this is the only anchor that we have with which to relate ourselves properly to life. The word of God is the only objective standard by which the circumstances and feelings which we are experiencing can be rightly judged. All other else, the hymn says, is sinking sand. To judge by anything else is to live a disoriented existence. This is why this morning, when we were talking in 1 Corinthians 6, about Paul saying, why would you go to, to law with, with, uh, against another person in the church, against an unbeliever? Why not submit to even the least esteemed man in the church? Why? Why could Paul so confidently say, why not submit your judgment to the least esteemed man in the church? Because at least that least esteemed man in the church knows to judge by the only proper orientation in this life, which is the word of God. To judge by anything else is to judge by a disoriented existence. If the foundation of the way that I view life is not the Word of God and the promises of the Word of God, then I am not viewing life properly. I have set aside the clear lenses and I have put on some tint. Whether that tint be a yellow tint or a red tint or whatever it might be, I am looking through a tint. Maybe it's all hazy. Maybe it's like that privacy glass where you can't see anything on the other side. The stuff's useless. Maybe that's it. But whatever it is, you're not seeing clearly. You may think you see clearly. Jeremiah thought he did for a few verses there. Jeremiah expressed these things because that was his perception of existence. And then he said, then I recalled something to my mind. Then I got, I reoriented myself with reality. Maybe there's some people here this evening that need to reorient themselves with reality. You need to, to, to reorient your mind. You need to stop looking through the lenses of your perceptions, your feelings, and your emotions, and you need to get back into the lens of God's word. See life, see God, see circumstances through the lens of what God has said. This is the only thing that you can trust, especially when you're in that state of emotional volatility. 
to judge by anything else, a disoriented existence, leading us to only a couple of places, bondage to my emotions and my thoughts, or a complete and utter self-aception and disassociation with reality. That's the only place that any other foundation can lead. And that's as far as we're gonna go today within the text, verse 25. Not because there's not more to be said, but because there's simply too much more to be said. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, next time we'll learn some important scripture-wide lessons as it relates to the chastening hand of the Lord. Come back for that next week. But this week, I want to stay on this topic. I want us to think about our thoughts and our emotions. And our application in this regard will be a progression, with each point being an essential clarification to the one that was before. And let me say this before I get on these points. If you find yourself within this cycle, if you find yourself in this place of confusion, don't feel as though you're the only one. Don't feel a sense of shame and of guilt that says, oh, I did this, why am I so terrible? It, what it means is you're human. You know that it's been a tough year for legacy. Um, and the men of the church know this. This was me for about a month and a half between October and November. I was there too. I was sunk in the mire, getting up every day and saying, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't want this. I, I don't even know what to do. <laughs> I don't, every step was labored. It's like every breath was labored. It's frustrating, confused. What am I doing here? What's going on here? I'm tired. I'm weary. And then by God's grace and through the help of God's people, I recalled some things to my mind. And it reoriented me with reality of which I had lost focus. This is not beyond any of us. That's the point there. Let's talk through these points. The three points are these. Don't allow your emotions to dominate your thoughts and actions. Then, allow what you know to overcome how you feel. Then, root what you know in the only infallible source or you stand on sinking sand. This is the progression of thoughts. It's kind of a reverse progression in a sense. Start with the root, right? Start with the foundation of the infallible source and then go to what you know to overcome and then that allows you to understand your feelings. But we're talking from someone who's already in the place of emotional distress and working out of it. So that's why we're going in that direction. Point number one, don't allow your emotions to dominate your thoughts and actions. We live in a culture whose decision-making is dominated by emotions. The entire culture, people, Make every decision on emotions. We just got through Black Friday. Tell me that that's not an emotional holiday. Tell me that people don't end up at the end of that holiday saying, what did I do? I can't believe I did that. How am I going to pay for that? They got swept up in how they felt and what they wanted in their flesh, in their emotions, and they lost sight of the reality of their checkbook, right? Politics is dominated by emotions. Who cares about facts, right? Let's just hit the narrative and let's hit it hard and let's make it sound good and let's stage it all in such a way that it'll really tug on the heartstrings. And yes, we got them this time because we have a good heartstring tug. That's all it is. We are in an emotionally driven society and it, 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 it 
it's to the very fiber, to the very root of our society today. By design, our culture has been taught this. It has been taught to make decisions based upon emotions. And that for any number of reasons, some perhaps deliberate, some perhaps not. One likely reason is the absence of men from the halls of education. Thus, both our boys and our girls have been raised by a, in a feminine dominated environment. And so they will be naturally taught a worldview from a feminine dominated perspective, which is, and I think I can say this without controversy, if not without offense, a perspective that naturally tends toward a more emotional perspective. Another reason, perhaps more deliberate and more sinister. And by the way, we call that the effeminization of society, and it's happening, of course. The more deliberate and sinister, people are driven by emotions, and emotions are easily manipulated. You know this, I know this. This is why we can't trust them. People are willing to overlook what is actually happening as long as they can be made to feel a certain way. People are willing to give up true strength in order to feel strong, true security in order to feel secure. People are willing to give up true compassion in order to feel like they're compassionate. A pragmatic people whose base success, who, who base success upon emotional outcomes rather than rational outcomes is a people that can be manipulated so easily. And not just by their government or by their parents or by their pastor. And emotional people can be manipulated by Satan so easily. So easily. When society's there, much evil can take over. When Christians are there, much evil can take over. So we find that society lends itself towards this danger for any number of reasons. But let's talk about you and I. One of the things we know about Christians and culture is that it's not uncommon for us to operate almost unconsciously within the context of what we know and what, of what we're familiar there are any number of ways that we perhaps as Christians do things simply because it's what we understand, it's what we've always done, it's what we're familiar with. There are any number of ways that the culture simply rubs off on us. Can I put it that way? To that end, even among we who have come out from the general flow of culture, it may be that we have allowed certain elements of society's mindset, certain elements of society's perspective to find their way into our thought processes and into our routines. So it may be with relation to emotions. Because of the nature of our society, the direction that it has gone, encouraging people to think with their emotions rather than with a rational mind. The follow your heart mentality, which has been pushed in every form of media for the past half century, probably closer to a century at this point. We might call it the Disney line, right? Follow your heart. That idea has pervaded, love, love conquers all, right? That idea has pervaded media in every form for nearly a century now. And what you need to keep in mind is that this idea, this follow your heart mentality, this emotionally driven way of living is a recipe for disaster, personally, familially societally. Individually, to be driven by your feelings is to be driven into any number of dangers. Perhaps into the danger of false security, 
where because of how we feel, we put an improper priority upon money or assets or insurance or work because when I'm doing those things and when I have work or when I have enough assets or when I have the insurance or when I have whatever it is, I feel secure. And so you feel secure because you have all these material assets and because you feel secure, you have left the true security of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And so we have built our house on sinking sand because we have a material, worldly wise idea of security which has stripped from us the necessity or the compulsion to rely upon the Lord. Now again, I'm not preaching against work or insurance or any of those things. What I'm saying is where is our trust? Have we allowed the fact that I have to feel secure? I have to see that number in my bank account. I have to see this thing. I have to see that thing. I have to know that that's there or else I can't sleep at night. Have we allowed that to override what we know from the word of God? So that if we're following the Lord and things aren't quite going as planned, but if we're following the Lord, I can say this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that I'm not consumed. It's not of the bank's mercies that I'm not consumed. It's not of my neighbor's mercies that I'm not consumed. It's not of the government's mercies that I'm not consumed. It's not of my doctor's mercies that I'm not consumed. It's of the Lord's mercy that I'm not consumed. So then who should I run to for hope? Who should I run to for peace? If it's of the Lord's mercy that I'm not consumed, then I need to run to him first and foremost. And because these things make us feel secure, at least until they fail us or they're taken away, we're lulled into a false sense of foundational security by our feelings. Perhaps the danger is an imbalanced lifestyle due to irrational fears. These are they who over health fears or poverty fears or relationship fears, fears of rejection, fears of illness, fears of failure. They run to everything and anything, every solution, every new thing, or they simply run and hide from everything. They never do anything with their lives because they're so afraid of failure that they won't get started. Or they're so afraid of what could be around the corner. They're so afraid of that next step, that next turn, that next possibility that they are constantly seeking to mitigate for future possibilities that may never even exist. And they're literally spending their lives running from themselves, running from their fears, running from their concerns, running from their worries, instead of walking with the Lord. Because they have, they're depending on their emotions rather than on the Word of God. Their fears and their insecurities are dominating their decision-making. When your emotions dominate your perceptions, your actions, your desires, you are being dominated by something other than the Lord. He's, he's not being Lord, right? You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. And to that degree, you're going to fail to see reality properly because you are living in a disillusionment. You are living in an imaginary world that your emotions, propped up maybe by society, maybe by someone else, maybe by some circumstance, but your emotions have put you into an illusion that is dominating you. And you need to recall these things to your mind, that it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. You need to reorient yourself with truth. And this objective perspective it's not emotional, uh, emotionlessness. May I say it that? May I say that? May I make that clear? 
this objective perspective unto which we, we, we call ourselves here, it's not emotionlessness. It's not that you're cold and heartless and that means that you're grounded in reality. No. Oh, those people that cry. You know, no. No. But rather, it's when all of my perspectives and my sensibilities and my priorities are grounded in the realities, the objective realities of God's word, of God's present existence, from them which my emotions can flow freely and be rightly oriented. I can then live out the natural emotions in a proper oriented way where I'm not driven by my emotions, but my emotions are the outworking of my understanding and my compassion and my love for the Lord and for others. And I can live a properly balanced emotional existence. So don't allow your emotions to dominate your thoughts and actions. Number two, allow what you know to overcome how you feel. We all know that there can be a dramatic difference between perception and reality. We all know how easy it can be to be drawn into a perspective which is empathetic or compassionate or well-meaning or conscientious, being passionate, maybe even effective, while simultaneously lacking the essential character of being, you know, you know true. It's possible. It happens all the time. You know, don't confuse me with the facts, right? I have, I have some feelings to run off of here. And we must assume the mindset by which we understand this, that the only safe anchor point by which we approach life is the anchor point of truth. Start at truth, then figure out how you feel. Start at truth, then allow compassion, then allow emotion, then allow conscientiousness, then allow empathy, then allow passion, then allow those things to flow from the base of truth out into the world, out into your existence, into your life, into the lives of others. So that no matter how I feel about something, I am compelled to follow the truth where it leads and to make positive determinations about things only as they show themselves to be a reflection of truth and reality, not my perception of truth and reality, but truth and reality as it exists according to the word of God, our only anchor point. We'll get that, to that in a moment. And of course, I'm dancing around this source of truth and reality because that's point three. Do you see then this progression? Whether or not anyone realizes it, this is the progression that we take on this path to truth. It begins with recognizing the absolute bankruptcy of my own feelings, my desires, my perceptions, the feelings, the desires, the perceptions the, the, of society, all of the other foundations upon which society might build their way of thinking. It begins by recognizing that it is all an illusion. And incapable of bringing me to that place of success, happiness, and contentment of which I desire. And then understanding that the world operates on a set of truths, that regardless of whether or not I like those truths, or regardless of whether or not the people around me are ever willing to acknowledge those truths, that the world operates upon a set of indelible truths. And when I align with those truths, when I agree with those truths, I'm going to find myself in a place by which I can then become effective. And this is at first frustrating because those truths will stand in conflict with my emotions a lot of times, won't they? 
how I feel or what I want will be in conflict with the truths that I see about how the world around me operates. But then I find this, this place of liberation when I realize that I don't bear the burden of making the rules. I don't even bear the burden of judging those, the consequences of those rules. It's not for me to carry around that burden through my perceptions and my emotions. You want to know one of the reasons why people are struggling so much today emotionally as they're driven by their emotions? Because they have erected a framework within which they understand the, rule, uh, the world. They have erected for themselves a rule book. They have erected for themselves the consequences of breaking those rules that they perceive. And now they bear the burden of propping up their world and the consequences of their perceptions of the world. They bear the burden of propping up the rules and its consequences. They have made themselves judge, jury, and executioner. And they have to because they are forming the world in their image. And that's a burden that none of us can bear. That's not a burden that's carried around. And how liberating it is for me when I recognize that there is a truth that is beyond me. That whether I believe in it or not, that whether I align with it or not, it's going to keep ticking. It's going to keep happening. I could break every clock in this room and the time is still going to tick, right? I can, I can refuse to believe that there is such thing as time and yet I'm still going to get old. And I can, I can refuse all I want the realities of truth. But it's not going to change a whit of the fact that it's going to operate the way it's going to operate because that is how it's designed. And when I see that, then I am released from the burden of having to <laughs> control my own existence. From having to, 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 to judge the consequences and I am free to simply align with what already exists. I have the freedom to live above the circumstances that are around me. I have the freedom to live above the fickle nature of my feelings and my perceptions because those feelings and those perceptions don't actually touch what is true. No, my, my, my feelings are never going to alter the truth. My perceptions are never going to change what is real. And so if I can see that and I can put my loyalty upon what is true and what is real instead of upon my emotions and my perceptions, I am liberated. I'm liberated. It frees me unto the realization that there is such thing as solid ground upon which I can stand. And I don't have to simply be treading water for the rest of my life. And it isn't up to me to figure it all out because it's already been figured out for me. And praise God, it's been written down for me. It's in a book. Thank God for that. It is for me to know the truth and then to allow what I know to overcome how I feel to operate under a new conviction, a conviction that what I feel is not always, perhaps not even regularly, especially at first, a proper reflection of what is real. And so to approach my emotions and my impulses and my urges with a large degree of skepticism, evaluating each of those emotions and urges and perceptions on the basis first of the standard of truth, submitting them, and then when they pass the test, admitting them. Now, I don't pretend that it's simple. 
I say it, and I say, look, just do this. That doesn't mean it's easy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's not, it's not a battle. But the concept is simple, isn't it? If only we'll submit to it. And this brings us to the point where the rubber meets the road, the true hinge upon which all of this turns. Once a person has learned that their emotions, their feelings, their perceptions are entirely unreliable, and once a person has realized the existence of an objective set of values upon which life is built and by which life operates, then it only stands to understand what that object is what that objective set of values is and where does it come from. And of course, that brings us to our third point. Root what you know in the only infallible source or you stand on sinking sand. The Word of God is the only objective source of truth in this world. Other things may reflect objective truth as it reflects the Word of God, right? Any number of people any number of institutions, any number of philosophies have a reflection of objective truths to whatever degree they reflect something found in the Word of God. And yet the Word of God is that rock. The Word of God is that anchor, and there is none other. Even those things which I see with my eyes and hear with my ears, even those things I can touch with my hands can be deceiving, can't they? Counterfeits are everywhere. Confusion abounds. In a world which is full of false positives, in a world which is filled with conflicting truth statements, in a world which is filled with confusing decisions, in a world which is filled with deceivers and manipulators and destroyers, and that's even outside of the deceitfulness of our own heart, right? That's the externals, much less my own internal motivations, my own capacity for self-deception, which is through the roof, and we know that. The Bible stands above it all like a lighthouse in the storm of life, guiding all of those who will look to it into the safety of its harbor, while all others end up shipwrecked on the rocks of life. Is this not what Jeremiah admits to here? that he perceived God to have been his destroyer, that he lived mired in the hopelessness of his own sorrows, that he was filled with bitterness and gall. He literally thought God had it out for him, that God had a target on his back and was shooting arrows into him. But then he says, I recalled something to my mind and it restored my hope. And this recollection was the character of the Lord that he had declared since all the way back at the beginning, that he, he, he declared as he covered Moses, and he passed by him and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abundant in compassion. God has always been this. God will always be this. The question is, is that what you're resting in? Or have you allowed how you feel to dominate what you know to be true? Jeremiah wasn't seeing all the how of God's compassion. We'll talk more about that next week. Yet as sure as the air he breathed, so sure Jeremiah was that God's compassions fail not, that God's mercies are new every morning, that God is faithful. Why? Because he knew it, because God told him so. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Perhaps this very concept 
Perhaps Jeremiah himself may have been on the Lord's mind when the, our Lord gave this parable or this, this uh, uh, metaphor, as it were, in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus said that those who listen to his words are like those who build their lives upon a rock, on a firm foundation, that the storms and the stressors and the confusions and the frustrations and the tooth games and the charismatic personalities, they beat against the house that is built upon the rock of the words of Jesus Christ himself. And he may lose a window or two and a few shingles may blow off of that house, but it stood because it was on an immovable foundation. And Jesus said, those who disregard his words are likened to those who have built their lives upon the sand. And when those storms of life come, those philosophies and those feelings and those urges and those emotions, not only does the house, not only is the house asked to bear all of those stressors, but the foundation upon which the very house is built, upon which that life is built, and whatever that foundation is, maybe that foundation is a relationship. Maybe that foundation is financial security. Maybe that foundation is the experts. Maybe that foundation is a church or a pastor. And if that life is built upon that foundation and it's anything other than that solid rock of Christ, when that foundation gives way, so too does that life. So that there are some hard days and perhaps some of you have made it through some really hard days because your pastor is a rock. Or you've made it through some really hard days because your church has always been there for you. Or you've made it through some hard days because you know you've always had your mom around and she's always been able to, you've always been able to call her and she's been an ear and, and you've listened to her and she's given you that encouragement and you've made it. But then mom dies. Then pastor fails out of the ministry. Then church dissolves and the life crumbles because the foundation was not Christ. The foundation may have been something great, something kind, something wonderful, something well-meaning, something good, some emotional harbor, some physical harbor, but it wasn't Christ and your life collapses when the foundation collapses. Not only can we not afford to have our lives built upon such meager and weak foundations, but who in their right mind, knowing there is a rock, would build on sand? Who would do that? And I'll answer my own question here. Many, even most, will do that, won't they? Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Same passage, just a little bit farther back. Many there be who walk on the false road of good intentions, the false perceptions, the false emotions, emotional motivations, because within that broad road, I get to define the terms by which I live my life. 
I get to define my own reality. And even when I know it's false, I'd rather live in the false world that I want than to feel, and, and to feel as though I have some measure of control over it than to submit myself to a reality which is outside of my authority and my control. So it is that there are few who walk that narrow path whereby they hear the words of Christ and they build their life upon it. And that is the call this evening, that we would let ourselves go our perceptions, our emotions, our compulsions to control and that we would submit all of these things to the infallible truths of God's holy word. This is the example we see in Jeremiah, but it's not just in Jeremiah. Let me give you a couple of examples to help solidify this. Psalm 77, the psalmist did this exact thing. Listen to this with me. Psalm 77, verses one through nine, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed, Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. The psalmist is troubled. He cannot even put his trouble into words. He says that he has cried so much that he can't even see anymore, that he is so troubled he cannot even frame words any longer. He says, I've lost all reference points within my own heart. I've communed with my own heart. I've made, my spirit has made diligent search and I have no reference points left. I can't see God. Has God forsaken me? Has he forgotten grace? Has he shut up his tender mercies? What do I do now? He tells us in Psalm 77 verses 10 through 12. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember. There it is again. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. The psalmist says, I will stop thinking about how I feel, and I'll start remembering what I know. I'll start remembering that this is my problem. This is my infirmity, but it's not God's problem. God is, God is still there. God is faithful, and I know that. His works are always the same, and I know that. God's way never fails, and I know that. And I will remember that. I will remember what I know. And I will allow what I know to override the sorrow that I'm feeling in this moment. It doesn't mean that the infirmity has gone away. This is my infirmity, he says. But I will remember. I will subject what I'm feeling. I will subject what I'm experiencing to what I know of the God that I serve. We quoted Job 30, uh, 23 earlier, where Job expressed dismay over his own incapacity to understand what is going on, to reconcile with his own emotional state. He says, I've looked for God up, down, left, right, and I can't find God. Well, I stopped right before the good part. I stopped right in the middle of the context. Let's read the whole context. Job 23, verses 8 through 12. 
Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and, on, uh, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath, he hel uh, hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job says, I have no idea what God's doing. I have no idea how to process all of these emotions. I have these sorrows that are in my heart and I'm expressing confusion over what God is doing, but I do know something, that God knows the way that I'm going. And when he has tried me, I'll be better for it. Job knew that God knew. And Job says, I will not be so foolish as to divert from the path of God's way simply because I don't understand what God's doing. Stay faithful. I won't be so foolish as to try to bend reality to my emotions or my perceptions or my desires. Instead, I will count the words that have come from God of more necessity than the, than, than the, the food that I'm going to put into my mouth. I will recognize the reality that there are some things in life that are more important than the things that I can taste than the things that I can feel. That God's word is more important and more necessary to my understanding of reality than is food or sleep or shelter. And that I will count his words of my, uh, as necessary as anything physical in this life. So that even those things I can see and touch and taste will not inform my reality as much as what God has said to me. Jesus echoes Job's words in his own temptation, does he not? Satan says, make these stones into bread after 40 days of fasting. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. One more example. So Jeremiah has done it. Job has done it. The psalmist has done it. That's a pretty good track record to see that there's a trend in how we handle our emotions. What about Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the reorientation to reality right there. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul says, I know what I'm experiencing in my body. I know what I'm feeling. It is a thorn in my flesh. Perhaps it gave him pain. Undoubtedly, it brought to him deep emotional frustration. So Paul, perceiving this thing to be a hindrance to him, submits it to the Lord and he says, God, take this thing away from me. It's, it's hindering me. It's frustrating me. It's, I'm struggling with this thing. I don't want this thing here anymore. And God came back and said, I have a new perspective for you, Paul. I have a new way to look at the emotional distress you're feeling. I have a new way to look at this, per, this perceived bad thing 
The word of God told him that the thing which he perceived to be bad was actually God's grace given to him to keep him humble and submitted so that God could magnify his strength through Paul. And perhaps without that particular grace that God had given to him, Paul might not be effective at all in ministry because Paul would start trying to do it in his own strength. God says it's time to reorient your perspective. See, Paul, your emotions have fooled you into thinking that this thing, which is my gift to you, is bad. You may not always enjoy it, but it's time to reorient how you think about it. And at the word of the Lord, Paul realizes that what he perceived to be a physical hindrance, what he perceived to be an emotional frustration, was actually the very source of his power with the Lord. And his emotions and his perceptions then changed, right? He then changed the way he felt about that thorn in the flesh. He now recognized that this hindrance was a strength, that this frustration was a part of his joy. And so he said, most gladly, I will glory in it. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to feel any better, but that's okay. It's okay because he's allowing what he knows to override how he feels. Because what Paul felt what Paul perceived, even though his senses told him this was a bad thing, in this case, even if, even if he was in pain, his senses were wrong. Maybe every moment of the day, he, his nerves were telling him, this is a bad thing. Your body is in pain. You are not a happy camper. And every day, Paul could wake up and say, those nerves of mine, they have no idea. They have no idea the grace of God that was given to me in this pain because this is the thing that is keeping me weak so that God can be strong through me. Most gladly, therefore, I will glory in this thing. So his thorn in the flesh became his source of rejoicing because God's word meant more to him than his own feelings and his own senses. So too must it be with us, brethren. We must not be driven by the winds of our own emotions and perceptions but rest upon the rock of God's unchanging word. If God's word is true enough to be the rock upon which you, you found your very eternity, then cannot God's word be true enough to be the rock upon which your today is founded? The very first filter through which every feeling and thought and perception that you entertain in this life passes must be through the word of God. It is the only thing that will not fail you and cannot fail you. God and his word. I will fail you. I'm sorry to say it, but I will. This church will fail you. I don't want it to, but it will. Your parents will fail you. Your siblings will fail you. Society will fail you. Experts will fail you. Governments will fail you. Your body will fail you. God does not fail because God cannot fail. Because great is his faithfulness. Let us never forget it. Let us build our lives upon it. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.